Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. On August 29, 2021, a devastating hurricane made its way to the American South. First hitting Port Fourchon, Louisiana, the storm would eventually make its way east across the nation. Known as Hurricane Ida, it swept through Louisiana exactly 16 years after Hurricane Katrina devastated the area. 115 people died because of Hurricane Ida, which is now the second most damaging hurricane to make landfall in Louisiana on record behind Katrina. And about 1,300 miles northeast, Ida poured more than three inches of rain in one hour onto New York City, leaving many residents to scramble for their cherished belongings and for their loved ones, some trudging through chest-high rainwater. It is absolutely crucial for people to get off the road. If, If anyone's thinking of going out, don't. If you're on the road, get to safety immediately. Do not go to the MTA, as you, I think you know, Subway lines are having tremendous problems. In fact, uh, our first responders are getting people off some trains that were stuck. Ida and other high-category storms have a catastrophic impact on vulnerable and low-income communities, which tend to be in flood-prone areas. When natural disasters displace these communities, it makes it even more difficult for people to recover. In New York City alone, the cost of securing flood-prone areas could cost up to $100 billion in sewer upgrades, a cost city officials say would need substantial federal funding. And climate change, according to experts, is spurring more frequent and deadly natural disasters. Hurricane Ida also further highlighted long-standing racial and socioeconomic inequities in housing. Your likelihood of surviving these horrific events and being able to bounce back afterwards comes down to where you can afford to live. We walked down our block and everybody, everybody was cleaning out their basements or their lower levels. There were some that you couldn't even open the door. The doors were destroyed. The garage doors were destroyed. When you get a basement apartment, there is a possibility that you might have some sort of issue with baggage or whatever, but you don't think that you're going to almost die. In this week's episode of Connect the Dots, we take a deeper look at how people are coping with the aftermath of the storm nearly two months later. We hear from a Bronx native who lost everything because of Ida, as well as a Louisiana local who's lived through his fair share of hurricanes. We'll also hear from insurance and housing experts in the nonprofit sector who can shed light on what the road to recovery from these storms should look like. 
I'm Linda Lopez, and this is Connect the Dots from Odyssey, a weekly podcast where we draw together multiple perspectives to unpack a single compelling story. The Bronx is filled with lower-level housing. Some are called basement apartments because they're located at the lowest level of the building. And even with the looming threat of frequent flooding, this is oftentimes all people can afford. The housing situation in general needs to be restructured in New York City. I got a basement apartment, or lower level, sorry. Uh, I got a basement apartment because it was the most affordable for me. And it was still too expensive. Dempsey Palat is a multimedia producer for 1010 Winds and WCBS News Radio 880 in New York. So I, I it's me, my wife, and two kids, right? Reasonably, I should be able to have a two to three bedroom apartment. A two to three bedroom apartment in the Bronx, the Bronx alone, is anywhere between $23 to $2,500. Can't afford it. That's so expensive. You know, I, I think the cost of living keeps on going up. But, you know, the cost of of earning stays the same. He's also a native Bronx resident who says he's never experienced a storm of this magnitude before. So he didn't think much of Hurricane Ida. But this time, something was different. It was September 1st. The day was fine. I remember I had a whole bunch of interviews. Um, You correct me if I'm wrong. I think we might have had a Connect the Dots meeting that day. It happened in the evening at around like 930 me and my wife, uh, we had just eaten dinner. We were watching a movie with our son in the living room. We are winding down for the night. We were watching the new SpongeBob movie, and I was actually enjoying it. <laughs> but, um, yeah, and I was on the couch, and all of a sudden, this is when everything, this is when I knew something was wrong, right? So we had gotten a little bit of flood water, and we had put some towels down by the door. We are like, okay, nothing to worry about. And we were like, okay, we'll check it in a couple of minutes to see if it's all drained up. and. Uh, I sat down, watched, continued to watch the movie, and all of a sudden, I could hear very loudly and clearly from my bathroom, my toilet started to make like a bubbling noise. And I was like, that's new. And so the, the way I was thinking, I was like, okay, it's raining outside, toilet's acting up, it's definitely a connection, it's not a coincidence. So I went to go check the toilet, and um, it, it, it was still bubbling, and it looked like there were some like backup coming like everything you know everything that's supposed to go through the toilet was coming back up but it wasn't overflowing or anything so then i went straight to the door to check on it and more water was pouring in at that point and uh i immediately opened the door and there was <laughs> a little bit more than a puddle of water right outside my door uh which was which i immediately knew was a problem because there was a drain outside my door. luckily we had a wet vac uh because we had experienced miter puddles before I had my my kids in the living room. My daughter was in her bouncer. My son was on the couch. I said, "Guys, stay there. Be right back." So I go out, and I used up one of one of our garbage cans to try to scoop up all the water. So I tried to scoop up as much water as much water uh, that was in the puddle. And at this point, it's also raining. Obviously, it's pour- but it's like seriously pouring outside. So I I scoop up as much water as I can in this bucket, and I, it's heavy, and I carry it up the driveway. And I try to find a decent spot to throw it into the street. After the first time that I did it, I immediately knew that it was going to be an issue because all the water that I threw into the street was pouring back down into my driveway. Uh, and I, I, I took a look around and the entire street was flooded. So I, um, I went back in 
And at this point, I'm still optimistic. I'm like, okay, maybe our landlord can tell us if there's a backup drain somewhere. I'm on the phone with the landlord and I start to see water come from our back door. It's it's no longer just at our door. It's all across our apartment. We have about an inch or two inches of water in our entire apartment by this point. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I see more water coming in from our back door. And my first thought was like, unplug everything that is on the floor because if that water rises anymore, that could be a problem. So I unplugged uh, the computer, our appliances that were close. I think we had like a washer and dryer and stuff like that. We unplugged as much as possible. And I told my son, I didn't want him to get his feet wet, to stay in the room and to get on his bed. He had a bunk bed, which I'm extremely fortunate for to this day. And I put my daughter in her, uh, her crib. We start taking out like clothes to try to soak up all this water. So I went to go check in to see how much water was coming and to check on the drain in the backyard. So as I open the door, a swarm of water comes in, like a flood of water comes in. So there's even more water in the apartment now. And after that, I sl- I tried to slam the door shut. It struggled, but I finally got it closed. But more water was still coming in through the door. I told my wife, I said, stop soaking up the water. We got to go. We got to pack. And my wife, she said, something told her to check the door. And I'm like only one or two bags in. And she starts screaming, I can't open the door. I can't open the door. And I, oh my God, sorry. I'm just thinking about it again. So, you know, in the back of my head, I'm like, okay, so we can't open this door. Back door has water. I don't want to die in this apartment. I don't want to say that out loud. You know, I want to be hopeful. I, 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 so that was not an option. That was never an option for me. So we put both of our hands on the doorknob and we pulled as much as possible. And we did it. The door unjammed. What had happened was the, there was so much water at the bottom that the, the wood started to expand and it, it kind of locked it into place almost. But when we opened that door, a flood of water came in and like it pushed us back a little. And obviously, after we get pushed back and we're happy that the door is open, we're, she, she says, the kids, the kids. And I'm like, the kids, the kids. So I'm running through water. I'm running. I'm running through all this gushing water as it's coming in, and I run into the room. And um, we also had a cat. But my my cat on top of my son's bed with him. Uh, but my daughter was in her 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 crib, and it's obviously lower level. She I didn't put the put her on the bunk bed. So I grab her first, and I um I go to my son, and it, it's like it's I I was like fr- I was like not freaking out, but I was freaking out because I was like, all right, we have like three kids technically right but i only have two hands and so i grab my daughter i go up to my son and um i was like my my daughter's a baby so she can't hold on to me she needs both hands and like i was i i was scared because i was like i don't want to leave my son in here Dempsey says that by the time he grabbed both his son and daughter, the water was rising and there was septic water mixed in, turning the water black. I put him on my back. I said, do not let go for anything. And I had my daughter in tow. And so I leave the room and I'm trying to make my way slowly out of the water. Promised my cat I would come back for him. But I turned the corner and I saw my fridge floating. The water had come in so heavy and so much that my fridge was floating. And not only was it just floating, it was still connected to the wall 
through the, 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 the power cord. Obviously, thinking of everything that you would unplug <laughs> in a situation like this, you don't think of the fridge because you don't think the fridge is going to float. So I, 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 was, I stood frozen for a second. And then out of nowhere, my neighbors came. Oh my God. It was like, it was like the best and perfect timing. I had never been so grateful to see my neighbors in my life. They were like, okay, we're going to grab the kids. And she got her husband and her husband swooped in and I passed my daughter to him. And then another neighbor came over from like two houses down because they heard the screams and uh, he passed my daughter to her. They created like this little line down the hallway and they passed my, uh, my daughter and then they passed my son down. Um, and then my neighbor was like, okay, are you ready? We just got to move the fridge. Cause the fridge was kind of blocking the entrance. And, uh, I was like, I gotta get my cat. And so I went back, I grabbed my cat and then <laughs> on the way out, well, we had an ottoman by the door where we used to store our shoes that was floating. So I threw my cat in there and he sailed out with me. I, uh, my neighbors left, then they took the ottoman and I was the last one out the apartment. And by, by the time I left the apartment, it was up to like my chest, the water. It was pretty high. It was nuts. Oh yeah. And this all happened over the course of 20 minutes. For Dempsey, it wasn't just the apartment that they lost, but everything his family had gathered for their son and daughter over the years. And his son is taking a long time to recover from the trauma. He, he was like, Daddy, where are my toys? Like, what, what happened? And he's like, oh, it's lost, right, Daddy? It, it, it's not uh, something that I, I think... He, he definitely realizes its impact, but I think it's going to affect him more as he gets older. But he asks about the apartment all the time. He's like, uh, do we have a new home uh, or, or what happened to our home? And uh, we uh, honestly, we started, we found a, a child therapist uh, that he's recently started seeing to talk him through it. I'm, 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 a, I'm not a sentimental person, but I like, I have a lot of things that like have sentiment to me. Uh, like I had this brush that my, my grandmother passed away and, uh, she, I always had this brush that she had when she was a kid that's gone. You know, I could care less about like the TV or, uh, you know, my movie collection, stuff like that, the washing machine, but it's small stuff like that. That really hurts. Cause it's like, you really can't replace those things. We're, we're currently in the process of moving and just getting a table. And, you know, buying uh, chairs, you know, simple stuff, spoons, forks. You're like, dang, like this is expensive. So, it, I mean, just appreciate what you have because truly you do not know what you have till it's gone. And you most certainly don't know it's worth to you don't have it anymore. Not only did the Palat family realize how hard it is to replace the necessities, but they were also faced with the grueling process of requesting aid only to get denied. For FEMA, funny enough, we actually got rejected. We applied, spoke to a guy over the phone for like an hour explaining our situation. And he also, uh, he took down a list of what he called essential things that we lost, like beds, um, you know, uh, uh, garbage cans, you know, just things that you cannot live without, right? Uh, he made his own itemized list and we actually had to go meet him in person because he had to verify who we were. He was like, yeah, they'll be in touch with you in a couple of days. And uh, they got back to us. And it, I, like we explained to this guy, we're like, we're not, we're no longer living there. And we got rejected because it said we were still living at the property while it was being renovated. 
We still don't understand what happened or where the miscommunication went, uh, but we clearly weren't. I think the last day we were there was like the eighth or the ninth because we, but we, after we cleaned out everything and we saved everything that we could, that was ours, we moved completely out. And I think we did the FEMA thing uh, or we had, FEMA had reached back out to us uh, about our, our inquiry like the following week. So yeah, we were long gone from that place. We hadn't even slept in there or stood there in any capacity since the night the event happened. So I don't know where, the, where, like I said, I don't know where that miscommunication came from. But we appealed and they finally did give us something. But honestly, it, it's really, it's something, but it's nothing. They only gave us about three grand to assist with moving expenses. So they couldn't even help us out with any of the things that we lost. But they did say that we can apply for further funding if we need it which we might, we don't know. I think that uh, some of the wait times that it takes, I know other people that were affected by the storm that took up to 10 days to hear from FEMA. I mean, if you don't have anything and you need something, if you don't have any money or any anywhere to stay or anywhere to go, you're going to need something a lot sooner than 10 days. Dempsey's landlord, who lives out of state, wasn't able to help at the moment. The first thing we did was we definitely contacted the landlord. She lived in Florida, or she lives in Florida. And honestly, up until this point, we had no issues with our landlord. I think I like to think we had a good relationship with our landlord, but the way she reacted to the situation shed a lot of light on how she valued us because she did not even bother to get on a flight to check on us or to check on her property. She said, and I quote, that uh, it was too expensive to catch a flight out there. Meanwhile, we had literally lost everything. Insurance should have softened the storm's blow, but it became yet another obstacle for survivors. Another thing that I was kind of made aware of throughout this whole situation is that, at least in my case, the housing insurance doesn't cover floods. It covers other damage, but not floods. And a lot of the items that we had, we so my bed, brand new bed, I just bought it like four months prior. Called them up. They said, sorry, not our fault. A lot of these items have manufacturer warranties. Why isn't anybody accounting for flooding? These things obviously do happen. Three words, delays, lowballing, and denials. That's lawyer Amy Bach of United Policyholders. It's a nonprofit organization that has advocated for insurance policyholders since the early 1980s. I asked her what storm victims typically deal with when they're trying to get coverage. It's kind of the same um, problems that people encounter pretty much wherever. It's sort of the nature of the modern day insurance world. A lot of fine print in insurance policies that is confusing, uh, that people were not aware of. A lot of new limits and exclusions that insurers have put into place in, in the last sort of 10 years since climate change became an accepted reality, um, limits on what they pay for water damage, limits on what they pay for mold, higher deductibles. So for Ida, um, a big one is the fact that it has a name. It's a named storm, which means that for a lot of people, they have named storm deductibles and the insurance adjusters are saying, we don't owe you anything because your deductible is so high that the damage doesn't hit that threshold and there's no payout. And a storm gets a name when its sustained winds reach 39 miles per hour. It becomes a hurricane when its winds reach 74 miles per hour and becomes dangerous to whoever it reaches. These maze-like loopholes and contingencies plague insurance policies. And 
don't support the people that need insurance the most. People think, oh, well, well, this policy, somebody at the insurance department must have read this policy to make sure that it was fair. But that often is not happening. You know, the, the departments of insurance, they just don't have the resources to keep up. And insurers are, are constantly rewriting their policies, like more than ever now. And once you've signed on to a policy, there's very little recourse if loopholes are included. If you go to court, most of the time, the court's going to say, well, that's what the contract says. I'm sorry. But it is better than nothing. A lot of renters don't have insurance, which is unfortunate, something we are trying to, you know, we try to tell people to bargain and all that. But even if you have it, um, water damage is a problem because insurers decided a long time ago they didn't want to pay for flood damage. It's like in the 60s. And they really have worked hard to try to limit coverage. And, and so if you're a renter, hopefully, you know, your landlord has some coverage for the, you know, restoring your unit to a habitable condition, but it's not going to cover your stuff, right? So if you don't have renter's insurance and your stuff's ruined, unless you could establish that your landlord was somehow negligent and you could, you know, make a claim, um, you're not going to have coverage. Just like the situation Dempsey found himself in when Hurricane Ida ruined his apartment. Don't blindly trust that your insurer has got you covered. So, um, you know, be that be that pesky consumer that asks a lot of questions. What if my apartment floods? You know, what if I get broken into, et cetera? Ask those questions, take good notes. Um, and then if you have a claim, understand that, you know, ads are ads. When it comes to insurance claims, uh, you've got to be proactive. You cannot just think, oh yeah, my insurance company's gonna make everything good. It's a business transaction. It's a business negotiation. You need to be polite but assertive, and you need to do some math yourself. How much is it going to cost to put yourself back where you were before the loss? Make that request to the insurance company, follow up, be the squeaky wheel, get help from the state government, get help from a, a professional if you need it. Um, but don't just sit back and think that, you know, oh, my adjuster's so friendly and they're going to take care of everything. It just, you know, small claims, it happens. Um, big dollar claims rarely happens. New Orleans might seem a world away from the Bronx, but both communities felt the similar wrath of Hurricane Ida's pouring rains and forceful winds. Mark Menard is a digital content producer with Odyssey based in New Orleans. Not long before floodwaters would rush into Dempsey's home, Mark worked through the hurricane while it pummeled the southeast coastline. I was up until two in the morning writing stories and and, and covering you know everything that kind of went on uh, in, in the area. And then obviously the aftermath, which is still ongoing here. Um, you know, the thing about hurricanes is the news cycle from the national media tends to cover it for about a week or so, and then they move on to something else. But the aftermath of a storm generally takes a lot longer than that. And, and there are still people in dire need, even now, you know, two months, almost two months removed from, uh, from, from Hurricane Ida's landfall. While most of the country's mind isn't on the hurricane the same way it was when it made landfall in late August, many Louisiana residents still can't escape its impact almost two months later. The hardest hit areas are outside of New Orleans to the southwest uh, along the Louisiana coast, Lafouche Parish, Terrebonne Parish. Those areas are still uh, struggling with getting back to any degree of normalcy. They're still areas that don't have access to a grocery store. They're still getting, you know, hot meals brought in by the federal government. 
uh, there's still people living in tents on their property because FEMA trailers haven't been issued and they don't have a place to stay. And so they just stay on their own property next next to their demolished home in, in a tent. Um, the, that process has been rather slow to the point where our governor, John Bell Edwards, actually got permission last week to start up a temporary housing program run by the state using federal dollars, which is unprecedented. It's never happened before. And, you know, the last time we saw something this widespread down here was obviously, you know, Katrina. Um, but I can tell you, you know, we stayed in Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is on the western end of the state, uh, the, the second week of our evacuation. And they got hit pretty hard last year by Hurricane Laura. And they're still waiting on their federal money from Hurricane Laura a year later. Mark is no stranger to hurricanes. In 2005, he lived and worked through Hurricane Katrina, evacuating his home in the Lakeview subdivision of New Orleans to camp out at the WWL studios. They lost most of their belongings in the storm. Along the Louisiana coast, devastation from storms comes in a seemingly never-ending cycle, even as residents continue to deal with destruction from past years. You can look around the skyline here in New Orleans and, and the suburbs of New Orleans, and it looks a lot like Katrina in that there are blue tarps everywhere. You know, a lot of roof damage was accrued during Ida. And so the the, the, the blue FEMA tarps are, are dotting the skyline all uh, everywhere you look. Um, and, and that's, you know, the, the most outward sign uh, here in New Orleans that, that something happened. That and, and the fact that a lot of businesses still aren't really fully back to where they were in terms of their the hours that they're open and having people to work and and uh, so that that part of it is also uh, a, a little bit of a mess. Uh, it's, it's slowly coming back. Schools are, are have reopened for the most part. The, the, the final tier of of Jefferson Parish Public Schools, which is just outside of New Orleans, their final tier of openings happened last week. So you know we're finally you know everybody's finally getting their kids back into school. This time, Hurricane Ida's wreckage is compounded not just by the lingering struggles from the past storms, but by the delay of support. Obstacle people are facing right now is, uh, you know, all over the country, we're seeing the delay in the supply chain. You know, you see it everywhere with, you know, stores not being able to keep their goods in stock because everything is backed up on the supply chain due to COVID and the backup at the ports. And so, you know, that's also slowing recovery a little bit because, Building materials are, are a lot harder to come by than they would normally be. And, you know, you also have a shortage in workers. So a shortage in workers combined with supply chain uh, delays are also making this you know storm a little harder to, to recover from than than usual. But also, you know, it has to do with the size of the storm and the just the amount of damage that needs to be repaired. And, and that's a reality of, of this particular storm. One saving grace for New Orleans was a new levy system that was put in place after Hurricane Katrina. When Katrina happened in 2005, there hadn't been a storm of that magnitude in this area in quite some time, uh, at least that hit the New Orleans area. And there were a lot of missteps taken and a lot of lessons learned in that storm and also in the aftermath. Uh, the toll in Katrina wouldn't have been nearly as great if the levees hadn't failed. You know, that was the, the biggest issue is that the storm came through and there was quite a bit of damage, but it wasn't the flooding that we would eventually see. That happened because the levees failed. And so a lot of resources have gone into kind of making sure that doesn't happen again. One thing that we did not see in this particular storm was an evacuation, a mandatory evacuation, because by the time the path changed to, to kind of cover New Orleans, 
they realized there wasn't really enough feasible time to have a mandatory evacuation. They didn't want all those people to still be on the roads when the storm hit. Even though the new system helped avoid Katrina-level devastation in Louisiana, Mark told us the road to recovery still looks long and difficult. Because the state is setting up this housing program to get people, you know, a place to stay. So I don't know what the tie-up is in terms of FEMA releasing the the, the, the trailers, getting them here, or, or if it's the, the money. Um, we saw the same thing after Katrina. It took a long time to get people... Uh, the shelters they needed after Katrina. So I don't know if this is just a federal bureaucracy issue or if this is, you know, a matter of want to. <laughs> you hate to think that that's what it is, especially with a storm like Ida, where it affected such a large part of the country. You know, I, Ida, after it was through with us, moved up to the Northeast and hit New York and, and New Jersey pretty hard. And I think that a lot of people are hoping that because it affected those you know major population centers, that, you know, the movement would be there to, to kind of get this thing moving pretty quickly. Um, it could also be a function of just the sheer amount of, of people that, that need help. Uh, it takes a lot of time to process that. And, and, you know, we realize that down here, but, you know, here we are almost two months later and, and people are still having trouble getting the things they need outside of, you know, the, the MREs, the meals ready to eat that, you know, <laughs> that they hand out uh, in, the, in the aftermath of uh, disasters. You know, people are still having to get those because uh, it's it's the recovery is a little bit slow in areas. Uh, so I, honestly, I don't have an answer for why the, the the machinery moves so slowly other than I guess it's you know a function of the federal government moving moving slowly on just about everything. Similar to the Bronx, where people living in basement apartments with no flood insurance took on the brunt of storm damage, low-income residents in New Orleans also find it more difficult to escape the wrath of Hurricane Ida one big disaster can can really take a toll on, on their finances. You know, that's why that federal money is so important in, in, in times of disaster. Uh, you know, you, you also have a lot of people in this area that, you know, even if there was an evacuation, they couldn't really afford to go anywhere. They don't really have a way to get anywhere. We asked Mark if these storms and the cycle of damage ever make him want to flee the city that he calls home. I'm sure that there are some people out there who, you know, this this certainly can be a bit much for them. Uh, I think a lot of people who leave might be people who came here, you know, didn't grow up here. They, they, they were transplants. And I think, you know, once once you get that kind of a shock to your system, uh, then maybe the place doesn't seem as romantic as it did before. Uh, and so that, that could be some of the people who are leaving. But uh, in my experience, people who grew up here and, and have made their lives here don't generally want to leave. You know, there's always going to be something wherever you go. You know, if you move to the Midwest, there's tornadoes. If you move to the West Coast, there's earthquakes. If you move, uh, you know, if you move to the Pacific Northwest, there's landslides. If you go, if you go to the Northeast, and you know, you you have the the winter storms and and uh, you know the the snow and the blizzards and and stuff like that. So, I don't think there's a perfect place to live. I don't, I think that you know everywhere you go, you're going to be dealing with something. And the thing about hurricanes is that unlike earthquakes and unlike tornadoes, you do have advanced warning that they're coming. So uh, in, in that respect, you, know, the, the, you at least can prepare for it. And, it and, and to me, that makes it a little bit easier to deal with than something that springs up out of nowhere and can really catch you off guard like they have in other parts of the country. So Mark is staying put, along with the other Louisiana residents who couldn't imagine home anywhere else but he says he still sees a lot of need around him. In the immediate term, 
what people need, you know, the, the people who are, are really in dire straits, what they need is housing. They need some type of, you know, temporary shelter, which is what FEMA is supposed to provide. Um, and they need, you know, resources like grocery stores and medical facilities to be open. Residents say that support, especially in the form of housing, was visibly absent for the first two years following Hurricane Katrina. The city of New Orleans did not start anything on its own without waiting for federal funds post-Katrina. The collapse and the failure was at every level of government. It was city, state, and federal in response to Katrina. That's Anjanika Morris, executive director of Housing NOLA, a 10-year partnership between community leaders and dozens of public, private, and nonprofit organizations working to solve New Orleans' affordable housing crisis. People came to New Orleans as aid the first couple of years post-Katrina to dole out hundreds of millions of philanthropic dollars of people donating uh, to, to the people of New Orleans, uh, resources being provided, um, you know, windows, paint, wood coming down by the truckload and volunteers coming in the hundreds of thousands to help people rebuild. The citizens of New Orleans and philanthropy, nonprofits, coming together and volunteers. That's what happened in the first couple of years. It was not the city of New Orleans. Um, the, it, it, it was not. Uh, it was not the state of Louisiana and it wasn't the United States government. They were trying to figure it out and the Bring Back New Orleans Commission that put together a plan that's now infamously called the Green Dot Plan uh, that seeked to displace a lot of people and not give people a chance to come home. And it wasn't a necessarily an awful idea. They were actually trying to promote a nexus approach that you be strategic and you look at the areas that are less vulnerable. Um, but if you're not going to have that conversation with community and talk about, well, who happens to live in those neighborhoods right now? And how are you going to accommodate the majority of the citizens, the majority of African-Americans who don't live in those neighborhoods, right? So what community saw was a bunch of green dots over majority Black communities and whiter neighborhoods being welcomed back first. And so the billions did flow. The billions did come from in federal aid, billions directed just at New Orleans. The problem was is how those programs were designed, how those programs were deployed and where they missed the mark and how they, they missed the racial equity piece. They didn't um, contend for unconscious bias or overt bias, hundreds of millions of dollars and low-income housing tax credits were awarded to Louisiana uh, to, to rebuild. And there was NIMBY issues from across the state from, from communities about putting multifamily developments in their communities. And there was also inside of the state government, right? Then state treasurer, John Kennedy, who was the senator, actually held up projects for years uh, around, you know, some of the flimsiest notions and using some of that language, um, this is too much money to spend on housing for poor people and articulating that and that being allowed to stop projects from moving forward, making them take longer, cost more in the long run, um, and not, not finishing a lot of major redevelopment that was committed. Hundreds of thousands of people were helped. Thousands of units were brought back online in a better condition than they were before. Um, there's more resources than we had before Katrina, particularly when you talk about deeply affordable housing. There's more, there's just more units. It's still not enough, right? 
It might have met our needs before Katrina. It doesn't meet our needs now. Yes, there's more. And it's higher quality. There's not enough of it. So is New Orleans ready for another major storm? That's easy. I can answer. No, we're not. We're not. New Orleans isn't ready. Louisiana isn't ready. We weren't ready for Ida. That's what Ida showed. We keep making uh, the same investments in the same kinds of broken systems, not addressing, not committing to guaranteeing housing for all. They keep doing this trickle down notion that somehow if we pay these consultants and other kinds of businesses to subsidize them, that somehow miraculously people will have what they need to then they themselves create housing opportunities. That's just not how this works. Uh, COVID should have protected us because, and, and again, this is why I talk about COVID so much um, when we talk about how, how entrenched the housing biases are. Before you could take a vaccine, the only thing you could do was stay home. It's actually one of the things that you can still do now, depending on the efficacy of your vaccine, whether or not you've been able to get a booster, um, whether or not you can be where you can be. And you need to stay home if you've been exposed, right? If you're sick, you need to be able to stay home. And the fact that everyone doesn't have that, that too many people who even have housing, that housing situation isn't conducive to recovery, to quarantining, to being safe because that home may not have running water. They may be overcrowded because a family member or another, another set of relatives got evicted and now they're living with you and you're overcrowded. And whether or not children can learn in that home if they have to quarantine at home and, and do a distance learning. COVID has convinced me that we have a real serious problem in this country when it comes to housing. The bias is incredibly entrenched and we have to talk about it head on. And progressives and conservatives need to get their act together. For us, we say put housing first. So we don't care what letter you have after your name, what color your skin is, what ideological bent you say that you're you're left-leaning, you're conservative. Do you put housing first? Do you put the people you represent first? Then we can talk about economic justice. We can talk about criminal justice reform, education reform, healthcare reform. And of course, the, the, the one of the biggest problems that this country has dealing with race, dealing with how this country has leveraged the contributions of black and brown people and immigrants, and then not provided them with housing. Unless they conformed, unless they decided to, uh, you know, get closer to whiteness, then they could get housing that was guaranteed. But Morris says there is one saving grace in the Biden administration. There is pushback now around rental assistance, around COVID, that billions of dollars have been put out there. Too much of it, especially in Louisiana, is just sitting and the Biden administration earlier this month announced clawbacks to say, we're going to take this money back from you and give it to other communities inside your state that can move the money if you can't move the money. The road to recovery from Hurricane Ida is expected to be a long one, just as it was with Hurricane Katrina. Only now, the climate crisis is expected to make these catastrophic weather events more frequent. Looking ahead, experts say equitable and available housing investments in infrastructure, and swift, ambitious climate policies will be key in creating a livable future for everyone. This episode of Connect the Dots was written and produced by Lauren Barry, Sydney Fishman, and Dempsey Pilat. It was executive produced and edited by Mallory Samara. Until next week, 
I'm your host, WCBS News Radio's Linda Lopez. Thanks for being here. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Oh, oh, oh. Protect your vehicle's engine with a full synthetic oil change and save with Mobile One at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Purchase five quarts of Mobile One full synthetic motor oil and receive a $10 O'Reilly gift card after rebate. See store for details. With your Mobile One purchase, you'll also receive two times points during Old Rewards Bonus Points Month at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, oh.